millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. It's hard to keep two big things in mind at once. So while we've been fixated on the pandemic, it's been easy to lose sight of Brexit. But a year ago, Britain's post-Brexit agreement with the European Union came into force and a new reality dawned. One part of the UK where the effects have been felt in earnest over the last year is Northern Ireland, where a customs border has, in effect, been drawn down the Irish Sea between it and Great Britain, to the dismay of many. There is a perception within unionism that the Irish Republic's government is using the protocol to ease Northern Ireland out of the GB orbit and more reliant on the Republic and the EU. I'm not too sure if that's reality, but perceptions in this place mean everything. In Belfast, police have been faced with the kind of civil unrest uncommon since the Good Friday Agreement brought peace to the country. And with tighter regulation due to come into force in the early part of this year and the shock resignation of the UK's chief negotiator just before Christmas, the situation may well become even more fraught. You're listening to Stories of Our Times from The Times and The Sunday Times. I'm David Aronovich. Today, Brexit and Northern Ireland, the year of the protocol. And with one bound, we were supposedly free. On Christmas Eve 2020, a year after winning a landslide general election victory, Prime Minister Boris Johnson presented his government's new deal with the European Union as a festive gift to a virus-hit nation. Tonight, on Christmas Eve, I have a small present for anyone who may be looking for something to read in that sleepy post-Christmas lunch moment. You remember the oven-ready deal by which we came out on January the 31st? That oven-ready deal was just the start of this is the feast. And I believe it will be the basis of a happy and successful and stable partnership with our friends in the EU for years to come. Hooray! Or maybe not. Because what about Northern Ireland, the UK's only land border with the EU? What was to be done about that? Well, the answer that negotiators came up with was the Northern Ireland Protocol, which anyone who follows the news will have heard mentioned countless times. 
even while those who work in the news have been doing their best to make sense of it. The Northern Ireland Protocol was negotiated between the UK and the EU as part of the Brexit withdrawal agreement. The protocol keeps goods flowing across the border on this island without impediment, but at a cost, and the cost was a new border. A regulatory border in the Irish Sea, which acts as the de facto UK-EU border. A border which affects the billions of agricultural exports from NI to GB. But to avoid a hard border on the island of Ireland itself, further compromises would have to be made. The UK agreed that Northern Ireland would remain largely within the orbit of the EU. That meant a range of checks on goods travelling from Great Britain to Northern Ireland. And perhaps unsurprisingly, as the deal went from words to reality, cracks started to appear. Thus, the Prime Minister at the G7 summit in Cornwall last summer. The protocol is capable of being used and interpreted, which is, by the way, up to the EU, in a a pragmatic way or a theologically uh, draconian way. And at the moment, we're seeing, I think, a lot of unnecessary interference, a lot of unnecessary difficulties. And this was the UK's former chief Brexit negotiator, Lord David Frost, speaking in October. The Northern Ireland Protocol is the biggest source of mistrust between us. The protocol is not working. It's completely lost consent in one community in Northern Ireland. It's not doing the thing it was set up to do. It has to change. Then, just weeks later... Lord Frost, a key Boris Johnson ally, and at his shoulder for years of tetchy Brexit negotiations, has resigned from government, piling more pressure on Johnson's leadership, citing concerns about his direction of travel. Lord Frost's surprise resignation, tendered apparently because of all kinds of misgivings about other bits of government strategy, was a bolt from the blue. His role as negotiator was given to the Foreign Secretary. We begin with some breaking news that's come to us in the last few moments. It has been announced uh, that Liz Truss will take on uh, the role of Chief Brexit Negotiator after Lord Frost's uh, resignation. The appointment comes at a time when negotiations are far from settled. In October, for example, the European Union announced it was willing to drop the vast majority of checks on animal-based food products entering Northern Ireland from Great Britain in a bid to end the so-called sausage wars, which had held up the supply of chilled meats. This was EU chief negotiator Maros Sefcovic. More than 80% of the identity and physical checks previously required will now be removed. This will significantly ease the process for bringing food supplies from Great Britain to Northern Ireland. However, the UK government needs to do its part. We are showing great flexibility, but the remaining controls must be done properly. But as 2022 whimpers into life, Number 10 and its new negotiating team continue to signal a determination to rewrite their own original deal. So the initial question is, why did Boris Johnson and his team sign up to the protocol in the first place? Well, it came about, I think, in the rush to get Brexit done. I mean, you think of Johnson's tremendous achievement in getting that 80-seat majority in the December 2019 general election. He wanted to get Brexit done as quickly as possible. Henry MacDonald is a journalist, author, and now a writer for The Times and The Sunday Times, who's been working the Northern Ireland beat for more than 30 years. 
And so he just went ahead and did it because he now had a majority. He didn't need to rely on unionist votes anymore. Remember, Theresa May relied on the 10 votes of the Democratic Unionist Party. Johnson didn't need that anymore. And he basically bulldozed on, regardless of what the unionists thought. They felt betrayed. They felt angry. But as a result, he did this deal with Brussels, which they're now trying to renegotiate. So essentially, the UK position is this agreement we made, we don't actually like it after all, and we'd like to change it. Well, I think it's more a case of it's the unionists who don't like it. I'm not just talking about the DUP MPs in Parliament. I'm talking about the general unionist community. And it has caused political instability. It's caused a bit of trouble on the streets. The barrier, which is commonly known as a peace line, was anything but peaceful last night. The wall was built many years ago to try to stop clashes between politically divided communities in West Belfast. But there was trouble on both sides as crowds threw petrol bombs, fireworks and bricks. And it has uh, soured relations very badly between North and South, between unionism and the Irish government. I would argue that those relations are at an all-time low, the lowest they've been since the darker days of the Troubles. What is the UK government's objection to the protocol that it itself signed? All goods are being checked to see if there are EU standards at ports like Belfast and Lorne in Northern Ireland. They object to that catch-all nature of the checks. They're concerned that these checks may ultimately include medicines. Something like 90% of medicines that are sent into Northern Ireland come from Britain. And the worry is that they could be held up or even made scarce as a result of these border checks. So there are attempts to dilute the protocol, the bits that the British government don't like, such as medicines. Those goods that are destined for the Irish Republic, and it's not a very large percentage of them that come into Northern Ireland. Is there a way of differentiating the ones that will cross into the single market in the Irish Republic and the goods that will stay within Northern Ireland and won't affect the single market? Now let's talk about the impact it actually has had on the ground. You're in Northern Ireland. You go to the shops. You talk to people. Can you talk about what has actually changed since the agreement was signed and since the protocol came into force? For consumers, I don't think a great deal has changed. I do not notice a run on goods on the supermarket shelves. There's the odd time you'll get things like sausages, cooked meats coming from England that may have to be sourced elsewhere. But it hasn't really been a dramatic transformation. Producers, however, and people in business say it has made life difficult. Everything from people who buy dogs, for instance, who buy pedigrees are having problems with the checks on animals, having to meet EU standards, and they're getting delayed and trying to source dogs for their businesses. Specialist food, for example, the Jewish community in Northern Ireland, particularly around Belfast, reported that they've had problems with bringing in kosher food from suppliers in England. I think it's hurting sectional groups and it's hurting producers more than consumers at the moment. But the biggest fear is things like medicines. And this really does get people's backs up. What's going to happen if I can't get my medicines, which which is sourced in London, for instance? To what degree are people beginning to substitute, in other words, effectively to take goods produced in Ireland rather than goods produced in the UK? If there's any substitution going on with consumers, it seems to be from local production, much more milk products, dairy products that are produced here internally within Northern Ireland on the shelves. You see less cheap milk from English dairies and things like that. As for the Republic, I don't see a massive surge. In fact, there was a campaign in the spring. Some loyalists tried to organise it. 
to boycott Irish goods. On the consumption side, it hasn't been as impactful as it has been for producers, but it's more what's going to happen down the line that people are concerned about. A personal friend of mine has a number of conditions, one of which is narcolepsy, and he has to take a very specialist medicine, which is designed in a university teaching hospital in England, and that gets sent over to him. And he has been advised if this is not solved, he should come over to London and stock up on supplies and bring it over personally himself rather than wait for it to be shipped because it could be delayed. Now, the issue here, I presume, isn't that these medicines won't meet EU standards. It's the delay in getting them passed. Exactly. That, that's the problem. Don't forget as well, medicines here in Northern Ireland are free. We don't have any prescription charges. So we're very dependent on the pharma supply chain from the NHS and the businesses they source the drugs from. So that's a big, big concern. Let's look now at the cultural impact of the protocol in Northern Ireland. There's been a tendency, just as there used to be 20 years ago, to talk about Northern Ireland purely in terms of the Catholic community and Sinn Féin. There's been a tendency in that bit that is interested in Northern Ireland over here to talk entirely about the unionist communities in the last five years or so. If we look broadly, how have communities in Northern Ireland, I guess I also mean people who don't see themselves as sharply delineated, how have they responded to the implementation of the protocol? Look on the nationalist side, I think the political leadership of nationalism doesn't want the protocol to dilute, doesn't want it to be tampered with because they say that protects their access to the European market. However, I think it's fair to say the majority of unionists don't like the protocol. I don't think they're burning with anger over it yet. Any trouble there's been has been in pockets, but there is opposition to it, even amongst the Ulster Unionist Party, which is now the, the second fiddle to the DUP within political unionism. Even they, as they moderate and liberalise more and more, they're still opposed to the protocol as well. I think the biggest damage it's done is the North-South relations. I think there is a perception within unionism in general that the Irish Republic's government is using the protocol to nudge and ease Northern Ireland out of the GB orbit and more reliant on the Republic and the EU. I'm not too sure if that's reality, but perceptions in this place mean everything. I think we're not at a point of destabilisation. I think the most important point is that most people at the bus stop, in the pub, at the water cooler, in Belfast, Derry, Newry, wherever, in this part of the world, they're not talking about the protocol, they're talking about COVID and the pandemic and will we be in lockdown again? And it's actually created a kind of political truce at Stormont as well, because the the politicians realise they have to do something very, very practical and and sort this out and prepare the society for perhaps another outbreak. So the protocol is not the number one dominant issue at the moment, but it does have the potential over the next six months. So what you're describing is what you might call an Omicron truce, which is bound, or we hope is bound to end at some point, in which case sort of normal conditions will begin to apply. Let's dig a little bit more into the underlying thing. What happened to the Democratic Unionist Party in the course of the last year, and how did that relate to the protocol? The DUP were shaken to the core. They were firstly shaken by opinion polls that saw them shipping votes to the more hardline traditional unionist voice, who were saying, we told you so. We told you you shouldn't have trusted Boris Johnson. The new DUP leader needs to find a backbone. And he needs to say 
to the British Prime Minister. Prime Minister, there will be no First Minister so long as there is a protocol. We told you you'd get stabbed in the back, and the protocol is proof of that. And the DUP got frightened. The backroom men, and they usually are always men in parties like this, decided that they needed to dispense with Arling Foster, the First Minister. My time as Northern Ireland's First Minister may have come to a close abruptly, but I remain someone with a passion for service, for Northern Ireland, and for the Union. They saw her as the architect of the deal with the Tories that had gone sour. And then there was this period of musical chairs in terms of the leadership. So firstly, we had Edmund Putz. As leader, he comes from the fairly hardline wing of the party, farmer, traditional, born-again Christian, very much going back to the old Paisleyite roots of the party. The Northern Ireland Protocol has proven to be a massive challenge for us, and I will encourage all unionists to work with me to deliver an end which ensures we set the foundations for another 100 years of Northern Ireland within the United Kingdom. But then puts for reasons of his own and appoints Paul Given, who was his big ally in the Lagan Valley constituency just outside Belfast. Puts wants to be leader, but he doesn't want to be first minister. He makes his ally Paul Given first minister. But they're still doing bad in opinion polls. And in comes Sir Geoffrey Donaldson, the MP for Lagan Valley and leader of the party at Westminster. He became the third leader in a matter of months. But the argument goes that Donaldson's a much more polished operator. He knows how to work the system in London as well as in Belfast. He can reach out to unionist voters who are not that impressed by the kind of old hardline rhetoric that want something different, that want a new message. I will want to speak directly to our party supporters right across the province and also to reconnect with grassroots unionists and loyalists. I will also reach out the hand of friendship to those who have not been natural supporters of the DUP. And so Donaldson has come in, and oddly enough, the opinion polls of late have suggested that the DUP have stopped the rot. They've recovered some of their vote. He'll probably end up as first minister, maybe, in the next election, which is going to take place in the spring of 2022. But it's been a very turbulent time. So are you saying that he has moderated the DUP's rejection and language about the protocol, or is he just dressing it up in slightly more attractive language? I think it's probably the latter. I don't think they're going to be able to abolish the protocol per se, but they may score victories in relation to things like medicines and also other goods and services. But they're kind of stuck on that hook. They have to oppose the protocol. There's nobody within political unionism that says it's a good thing. But Donaldson comes across more reason, more measured. He's a good talker. He's good on television. And he is going to ultimately resign his Westminster seat and fight in the elections in the Assembly. Whether it's March or May, we don't know. It depends on the pace of events. His ambition is to be First Minister of Northern Ireland. Now, why that happens is a big, big question. One of the obvious consequences of this is that the more the unionists say they don't want the protocols, the more the danger becomes of this being framed as a Republican and Irish Republic battle against unionism. Is that what's happening? Again, David, I can't stress the importance enough of perception in this society and the management of perceptions. A lot of people within unionism look and see that it's the Irish government pushing this and also that the EU have taken sides. Traditionally, in Northern Ireland, from the time of the creation of the EEC, and Britain and Ireland both went into the EEC in the early 1970s, they've been in about the same time, Europe played a neutral role. 
Europe did not say we're in favour of United Ireland, we're in favour of maintaining the union. They provided money, they provided infrastructural funds, they helped build peace organisations. They were seen as relatively neutral. They didn't have much of an impact. The EU played absolutely no part in the creation of the paramilitary ceasefires and then the subsequent Good Friday Agreement, no part whatsoever. Now, the game has changed. The perception within the unionist community is the EU have now linked up with Dublin, with Sinn Féin, with Irish nationalism against us and the union. And that's how it's being perceived. And that is potentially dangerous. Coming up, we'll look at some of Northern Ireland's other political players and how opinions have changed over the last year. But first... I'm Henry Zeffman, Chief Political Correspondent to The Times. It's you, listeners and subscribers, who enable me to report on what's going on in the corridors of power in Whitehall and Westminster. Get to the heart of the stories that matter every day with The Times and The Sunday Times. Subscribe today. Visit times.co.uk forward slash stories of our times. Your History is a new podcast brought to you from The Times, and it brings together the real-life stories from our obituaries desk, which have been published for over a century. In this brand new show, we build on this legacy and explore the endlessly fascinating lives who have enriched and informed our own. Join me and our sponsor, Ancestry, as we journey through your history. So, we've spoken about Northern Ireland's unionist community and how a large part of that has reacted to the implementation of the protocol. But what about other sections of the wider community and the parties that represent them, and in particular, younger voters? How have the realities of Brexit changed their views on things like the union and Northern Ireland's place within it, or indeed, outside it? Most opinion polls, the credible ones from the likes of University of Liverpool, Queen's University's Life and Times, they all say the same thing. There's about a 60% majority in favour of maintaining the union. However, that doesn't equate to 60% of support for unionist parties, traditional unionist parties. They only get about 40%. So there's a missing 10 to 20% of people who more or less want to remain in the UK who don't vote for unionist parties. A lot of those people don't like the play on old-time religion, on faith and crown, all the old traditional unionist shibboleths. And a lot of those people either don't vote or they vote for the centrist alliance party who've been doing rather well of late. We may have to be socially distanced, but it's only by working together we can get through these challenges. Sadly, even in these tough times, the same old dysfunctional politics of division has held us back. We need to seize the chance for change, the opportunity to do things better than before. They're polling much better than they have. For instance, they've got eight councillors in Belfast City Hall and the Unionist Party have only got two. And they're all in unionist, what we regarded as unionist of the small areas of Belfast, where most of the representation comes from. So there is this disjunction between support for the union and support for unionist parties. It's one of the big political paradoxes of Northern Ireland. 
And as for young people, a lot of them increasingly in opinion polls don't identify themselves either as unionist or nationalist. They're neither. They're other. And that's a growing part of the population. That's where the battles will be won and lost politically over the next, I would say, decade or so. Well, that's interesting. So how would you theoretically appeal to these new constituencies? The new leader of the Ulster Unionist Party, relatively new, he's only in about a year, Doug Beattie, he has taken the Ulster Unionist down a much more open, socially liberal road. It is those who have inclusion, a respect for others, and a cultural understanding at the very heart of their society are the ones that do best. The Ulster Unionist Party is a party for all. It doesn't matter whether you call yourself British or whether you call yourself Irish. More than any unionist leader in the past, in favour of all the things that younger people are concerned about, like marriage equality, being pro-choice about abortion, and other liberal issues. Even in the DUP, there are people in DUP High Command who I know who admit that in the future they're going to have to really water down the old school drum-beating, old-time religion, faith and crown side of unionism and have a much more embracing political sort of entity rather than harking back to the past. This slither of the population, it's not a slither, it's quite a large chunk actually, who are neither, who are really kind of agnostic about the constitutional questions and even just general green-orange politics. This is an important and growing segment of the electorate that will have to be addressed. That's really fascinating. Now, in the context of, if you like, the older relationships, what has the battle about the protocol done to the capacity of unionists and nationalists to work together? Well, the paradox is that the pandemic has thrown them together. One of the benign, if there are any benign consequences or byproducts, has been these politicians who are existentially opposed to each other in terms of the constitution have had to work together practically day in, day out to manage the health service here, the furlough scheme, the lockdowns and so on. So even though the protocol has polarised politics, it's been put aside when it comes to the pandemic, which is the most important thing in people's lives at the moment. How much of a change from current polling would it take for what some units would regard as the doomsday scenario, which is that in the next Stormont elections next spring, Sinn Féin actually becomes the largest party and thereby has the first ministership. I think there's a very good possibility of that. It depends on the DUP shipping votes to the more hardline parties. There's every chance Sinn Féin could be the largest party. And in many ways, it's the DUP's fault. The post-Good Friday Agreement settlement at St Andrews, if you like, in 2005. It took place when the DUP became the leader of political unionism. It supplanted David Trimble's old party, the Ulster Unionists. And among the changes Ian Paisley insisted upon in relation to the architecture of a new Stormont, a new devolved government. That's the Reverend Dr Ian Paisley, the firebrand Protestant cleric who led the DUP to power in the devolved Northern Ireland Assembly and eventually served as First Minister in an unlikely alliance with veteran Republican Martin McGuinness of Sinn Féin as his deputy. It wouldn't be the joint forces of unionism together being bigger than nationalism, and therefore they would have the right to nominate First Minister. It was, no, the biggest political party, right? Because the DUP was so unassailable at the time, with so many seats. You could argue they're going to be hoisted by their own petard, because even if unionism is bigger than Sinn Féin and the SDLP together, the two nationalist parties, it's the largest party that emerges from the elections that will put the crown on the head of the First Minister. And that could be Sinn Féin. 
that would seem to be like a huge moment to have a Sinn Féin first minister. Perhaps it isn't as big a moment as we think it is. No. And it goes back to my first paradox, the paradox between the voting for political parties and voting for the union, because all the credible opinion polls point to a large majority in favour of remaining within the union. I don't think that will change if there's a Sinn Féin first minister. I think what it will do is it might galvanise or propel Sinn Féin to push harder and harder for a border poll. And if they're in government eventually in Dublin, which is quite likely in the next three or four years, perhaps, you might have a prime minister in Dublin and a first minister of the same party, i.e. Sinn Féin. They might put more pressure on the British government to hold a border referendum. So let's talk about 2022, about whether or not the protocol is likely to be changed or modified in the coming months and what happens under a scenario where it is significantly or under a scenario where it won't be. It's been put to me by British officials that it can be modified, it can be changed. And if things like medicines are fireproofed from the checks on the ports, that's one thing. It's also been said there are practical solutions to the protocol. For example, If goods can be distinguished between those that are only in for Northern Ireland, not going to be destined to cross the border into the Republic, into the single market, they could be free from checks. Certainly from the British and the Unionist side, that might be enough to get it over the line. I think a lot of this is going to depend on North-South diplomacy. I think you're going to see Unionist voices talking to the Irish government and making the point, can you go to Brussels and see if this can be modified, changed, because we don't want relations deteriorating even further North and South. But what impact could the new Brexit negotiator have on proceedings? The former Remainer turned keen Brexiteer Liz Truss is now in charge. She spoke to her EU counterpart, Mara Sefcovic, late last month and said afterwards the UK position had not changed and the UK would trigger Article 16 if it needed to. So how has her appointment been received in Northern Ireland? Lord Frost's resignation, I think, has created nervousness and suspicion, especially inside the Democratic Unionist Party. I think talking to some of their senior figures over the Christmas New Year period, they're concerned that did he resign because he thought there was a softening of the government's position apropos the EU and the protocol. I think the hope within the DUP is that Liz Truss takes as strong a position as Lord Frost had been taking with the Europeans over the Northern Ireland Protocol. There is a concern within that party that the government's stance has softened and that the influence of certain cabinet ministers and senior officials in Whitehall departments who want a deal with Europe, who want to avoid an economic war with the EU, are having an influence leading to that softening of the line. And that's a suspicion within the DUP, certainly within unionism in general. So what might unionists do now? At the start of this week, you had a New Year message from the the Northern Ireland First Minister. He's a DUP man, Paul Given, and he said it would be inevitable that Stormont would collapse, that that his party would pull out of the devolved institutions if the protocol stayed in place as it is. That reiterates the position that Geoffrey Donaldson, the leader, has been saying before Christmas. I think it's a case of the DUP playing poker stakes. I think they're raising the game, raising the threat level to embolden Liz Truss to take the same sort of line that Lord Frost was taking in terms of a root and branch change to the the Northern Ireland Protocol. It has been criticised by other unionists. Indeed, even Lord Trimble, the former First Minister of Northern Ireland, the Nobel Peace Prize winner, I interviewed Trimble at the weekend for the Sunday Times, and he made it clear that it would be crazy, in his words, 
for the DUP to pull out of the Stormont institutions and collapse devolution. Because every time devolution collapses in Northern Ireland, unionists go back into a deal that's less favourable for them. So, And this is also repeated by Doug Beattie, the current Ulster unionist leader, who says very much the same, that it would be a strategic mistake on behalf of the DUP to, you know, pull down the temple, so to speak, Samson-like, and bring all the institutions crashing down over the protocol. And this is going to be the, the dominant battle within unionism over the next few weeks and months. How do we respond to the protocol and, and what happens? But it, I think the ball is now in Liz Truss' court, and it'll be interesting to see the line she pursues in relation to the Europeans and this protocol. But Henry, there's a really interesting reversal here because I recall people who were in favour of Brexit accusing Remainers who talked about the threat to the Good Friday Agreement of using the threat from Sinn Féin as a lever in an argument. And what you're describing is a situation where the British government uses the unionists yeah. now yeah. as a lever in the argument. It is ironic, isn't it? Things have flipped. I do see that pattern as well, David. And I think there was exaggeration that Brexit was going to bring about a return to the troubles. That was never going to happen. And I don't think the post-protocol violence we've seen is anywhere close to a resumption of real violence. I'm still of the view that the loyalist paramilitaries and their political offshoots are loath to go back to any kind of armed action. And within the general communities on both sides of the line, anyone talking about going back to war would be regarded as insane. People love the peace here. They like the peace. They cherish it. There's a generation growing up, like my children, who've had no idea what the Troubles was all about or ever experienced anything like it. It would only be something out of nowhere, something catastrophic that could push things back in the wrong direction. You've been listening to Stories of Our Times, a podcast brought to you thanks to subscribers of The Times and The Sunday Times with me, David Aronovich, and my guest, Times and Sunday Times writer, Henry MacDonald. You can read more of Henry's work at thetimes.co.uk or in print, and he also writes for the Belfast Newsletter. The producer was Chris Wade, the executive producer is Kate Ford, and sound design was by David Crackles. And look, if you have a story you think we should be covering, an idea for a future episode, or thoughts on what you've just heard, send us an email to storiesaboutimes.thetimes.co.uk. See you tomorrow. Your History is a new podcast brought to you from The Times, and it brings together the real-life stories from our obituaries desk, which have been published for over a century. In this brand new show, we build on this legacy and explore the endlessly fascinating lives who have enriched and informed our own. Join me and our sponsor, Ancestry, as we journey through your history. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. Hi, I'm Jesse Crookshank. Jesse Crookshank. I host the number one comedy podcast called Phone a Friend. Girl, let's phone a friend. Not only do I break down the biggest stories in pop culture with guests like Dan Levy and members of InSync, I do it with my own personal boy band singing jingles throughout because it's my show. It's your show, girl. New episodes of Phone a Friend. Yeah. Drop Thursdays wherever you get your podcasts. So work it, girl, yeah, work it. Okay, that's enough. 
Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com.